0: Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation. David and I are super excited about this. David, it's great to have you back uh, stateside so we can talk about this. This is a talk that we've wanted to do since like last week, Evergrande made the headlines. There is a lot of stuff going on in China that I think we want to unpack today. It is affecting macro markets, it's affecting crypto as well. And we have uh, Sahil Bloom, who is an expert on the subject to talk about
1: it with. David, how are you doing, man? You, you feeling refreshed from all your conference travels? Oh my God, extremely. It's so nice to be back in my actual apartment with my actual setup. I hate recording uh, podcasts on a laptop, uh, so it's, it's good to be back and good to be back into the swing of things, making more content out of the bankless ecosystem.
0: Content never stops around content here. Content never that's stops, sure. nope, that's okay. You know what? And uh, like events never stop either. Crypto never stops. So why are we talking about Evergrande today? Why is that important to the crypto story? And, um, yeah.
1: What's uh, what's the TLDR here? So there's so many puzzle pieces floating around the world right now. We have the uh, United States as a nation state being very hostile to crypto. We have Evergrande, which is a very large real estate like gargantuan in the Chinese markets. And China is also becoming really, really hostile to crypto. Meanwhile, the the um, quantitative easing and and loose monetary policy continues. And also now we have apparently a catalyst for a, a potential catalyst for a, excuse me, a global contagion event. We're going to see if that uh, if that uh, description description is still relevant a week later. But there's so many different puzzle pieces that are sl- like floating around, hanging around in the air, and we're trying to see how it settles. Right. So we what we're trying to, to discover today is does this uh, Evergrande uh, real estate um, uh, what's the word like a crisis, I guess. Uh, d- how much is that going to impact the future of monetary policy out of China? How much is that going to impact our crypto industry? And how much of that is if impacting the markets as we see them right now? Uh, these are, this is one of those events where like in hindsight, we'll be able to uh, kind of explain exactly what happened. But in the moment, we're still trying to figure it out. And that is what we are talking with uh, today with Sahil. Yeah. And
0: absolutely. Also recently, I mean, on Friday, it's news that that China has banned crypto again. So how does that impact things? Is that related to Evergrande in any way? Are these isolated incidents or maybe there's some sort of tie that binds all of these things together? So guys, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Got to tell you about what's going on in the bankless nation. Uh, Wow. Releasing podcasts. We had this fantastic podcast with Uh, Ariana Simpson from A16Z, all about crypto gaming. What's the total addressable market for
1: crypto gaming, David? Uh, I mean, anyone listening, did you not play games as a child? (laughs) So you, which means everyone, basically everyone. It's
0: 8 billion people, guys. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what uh, Ariana said in the podcast. Listen to that one if you want to get up to speed on crypto gaming. Also, our friends and sponsor, TracerDAO, they wanted us to let you know that they are crushing it when it comes to perpetual products on Layer 2. This is on Arbitrum. They've got almost $20 million locked in their contract. So this is a way for you to go leverage long ETH or Bitcoin if you want. You can go long. You can go short if you so choose. Maybe trade on some of the macro news coming out of China. I don't know. Uh, All of these positions are tokenized, though. There's no liquidations. There's a mining program. And of course, our favorite, it's all bankless. No banks involved over here. So go ahead and check that out. We will include a link in the show notes to TracerDAO and uh, what they're up to. But David, I've got to ask you the question I ask every week before we get in. That is, what is the state of the nation today, sir?
1: The state of the nation is correlated, and that's a great way to uh, trade the markets. Again, back at TracerDAO, if you want to trade how correlated we are, because this China news came out, and then and then we dumped, and then this Federal Reserve insider trading news came out, as well as this debt ceiling. A lot of macro things are happening is pushing the crypto markets around, which as a crypto native guy really, really frustrates me. I prefer to be a self-sovereign from the macro markets, but all markets are tied to each other one way or another. So Ryan, the state of the nation this week is correlated. We are correlated. Yeah, I I was hoping,
0: David, in 2021, we would leave all of that macro market correlation in the dust and behind and crypto would have a run on its own. And it has to a great degree. But of course, we are still tethered to what happens in macro and definitely Evergrande and China ban is part of the story there. So guys, we will be right back to talk about all of this and more with Sahil, uh, Sahil Bloom. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible.
1: When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp. You can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum Layer 2. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord.
0: Hey, guys, super excited to be back with Sahil Bloom. Uh, Sahil is a writer and content producer focusing on money, finance, macroeconomics. You may have seen some of his Twitter threads. They are like world famous. Many of them go viral. He has this gift of distilling things down to their essence. He also has a master's degree in public policy from Stanford. He's recently been focused on this Evergrande crisis everything that's happening in China, and keeping us all informed. Sahil, it is fantastic to have you on Bankless. How are you doing today?
2: I'm great, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you all and love what you're doing. Man,
0: uh, Like likewise. And we especially appreciate the uh, the light that you've, you've kind of shined into what's happening in China with this Evergrande incident. We're going to talk about that. We also want to uh, talk about China's crypto ban, how this all plays out in geopolitics. But First, can you give us like, um, for somebody who hasn't been paying attention for the last couple of weeks on the Evergrande crisis, but they've, they've heard a headline, they're worried about contagion, this sort of thing. Can you give us like the 101 on what actually happened, like timeline of event style?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's set the stage, I guess, to start. Um, And the first rule of all of this is do not put the word ever in your name. You had like the Ever Given thing with the boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Now you've got Evergrande. It's just never a good idea. So stay away from that if you want to start a business. You you hear that Um,
0: Evernote? Sorry. (laughs) Sorry,
2: I think they might already be dead, unfortunately. I don't know. (laughs) Um, We might just not know it yet. Uh, So so Evergrande, what is it? Um, It's a Fortune 500 Chinese property developer. It's based in Shenzhen, China, um, founded in 1999 six by this guy, uh, Hoi Kayan. apologize if I'm butchering his name but doing my best. Um, you know it really started to boom in the 2010s. Um, the founder came up in the manufacturing industry. Uh, he really built this thing from the ground up. It's a big business, call it hundred billion plus of revenues, 5 billion ish in net profits last year, uh, it has about 1,400 projects across 280 or so cities around China. The simplest way to think about the business is that it's a home builder. Um, they buy land, they develop the properties on top of the land, apartments, homes, etc uh, and then they sell the finished products to end customers who are buying and occupying them. The challenge with this type of business is it has a really long cash conversion cycle. So what do I mean by that? You know it takes a while to go from where they invest the money to build these properties buy the land build the properties pay the contractors do all the construction to when they're actually receiving cash when they sell the properties on the back end with the exception of small upfront deposits that people might have to pay in order to kind of lock down a unit there's a very long time between when they invest and when they're actually receiving cash so that's the challenge with the business how do you solve that Really, it's with debt. You need some sort of financing mechanism for this. The cheapest way, historically, for them to do that has been with debt. There's equity capital, much more expensive, so they've been using debt. the problem for evergrande which we're going to get into obviously is they used a whole hell of a lot of debt along the way even by property developer standards they've been going above and beyond in terms of the leverage profile of the business you look at the chinese property development sector they were far and away the most over levered property property developer maybe the most in the world actually if we were to look at it so they had ended up accumulating a hundred billion dollars of debt for this business as they continued to grow it over the years Along the way, the founder, who had come up and was kind of a modest uh, living standards in his childhood, became a billionaire. Uh, Over the last couple of years, since 2018, I saw an estimate that he took about $5 billion of dividends as one of the major shareholders of the business. All the while, they were accumulating an insane amount of leverage and debt on this business. So pretty crazy, just like backdrop to the whole situation. And honestly, not that crazy that they took debt in principle, but the amounts and the quantum that it reached became quite mad. And we've talked about it, I'm sure you've talked about it on the show, debt is a double edged sword in the in the best sense of the word. On the good side, it's great, you can grow with really cheap cost of capital, you can go and borrow money to spend rather than having to invest your own. That's great, when it's working. On the other end of it, it's not so great when you get caught by the other edge of the sword. So a couple things happened that led to them getting caught quote unquote, in the last while. Um, Number one, China started to place some restrictions on leverage levels within the property development sector. Why did they do this? We're going to get into it as we dive into some of the things around crypto. But in my mind, it's power. They want to control. They want to have more control over these sectors. They don't want the kind of crazy spending um, that the property development sector and other sectors have grown accustomed to. So they placed some restrictions on leverage levels, net leverage ratios, liability to asset ratios, et cetera, that Evergrande was on the bad side of. And so all of a sudden, Evergrande can't borrow at the same levels that it previously did in order to continue to fuel the growth. And the way these things work, It's not dissimilar from a Ponzi scheme, as you think about it, because what you're looking at is you're having to borrow more and more money to fund your growth. You keep having to borrow money in order to fund the same amount of growth. And as soon as that growth slows, it starts getting much harder to pay the interest payments on that to service the debt. And that's what happened to Evergrande. About a year ago, they had to send a letter to local provincial government basically saying, we're worried that we're not going to be able to make an interest payment on some of this debt that we have outstanding and by the way we pose a systemic risk to the entire country if we go under because we have borrowed so much money and we have all of these homes that we are building for all of these chinese consumers and they basically said we're a systemic risk which i think is like a pretty cheeky move in general because you're putting a pretty strong arm under the government to say if you let us go under and it does collapse the economy, we told you so. And if they do nothing, you know, and, and, and that ends up being the case, it just it looks really bad. So you're sort of, in a cheeky way, strong arming them for the future. Hey, While also at that the it same time- in the
0: US. It worked in the US, right? It,
2: I, I think it works, which is the funny thing. I mean, people have, it's this moral hazard problem, right? Where there's a few levels of moral hazard here. There's one where you're borrowing money to fund all this growth. And so you're buying properties. You don't really care what you're spending to buy these properties or to buy the land because someone else is financing it. it's not my check that i'm writing it's some bank or some hedge fund or whoever it is that's giving me the money in this case they were borrowing from literally everybody i mean they were borrowing from employees they were borrowing from the retail sector it's really really bad when you get into the weeds of it Um, but basically all of a sudden they couldn't borrow to just keep growing they weren't growing quite as quickly they were having trouble meeting these payments And then you start getting this cycle, it's the deleveraging spiral that people talk about, and there is both a technical side to it, i.e. not being able to meet payments, and a psychological side to it, which is suddenly the narrative starts building that, oh, Evergrande's not so healthy, maybe they're not going to be able to deliver these homes, maybe they're going to go under, and then all of a sudden it gets more expensive to borrow people start demanding payments quicker, your vendors start asking for payments quicker, suppliers start asking, and the whole cycle starts to build. The media starts reporting on it, it becomes a story, Um, and it just starts to spiral, both the technical and the psychological. And that's what happened to them. And when you look at it, to me, it's like the finest example of this thing called Dornbush's Law, um, which is this amazing thing that not many people have heard of, which is with any great crisis, It takes a lot longer to happen than you think it will. But then it happens much more quickly than you ever thought possible. And so it's like this gradually then suddenly thing with with bankruptcies or with unwinds. And that's really the case here. I mean, people who have been observing Evergrande for years have known this was a hot mess for a long, long time, but all of a sudden you're getting hit. And in the last two, three weeks, the narrative has materially accelerated and you're in this environment where they're very quickly, you know, having the rubber meet the road on all of this.
1: Sahil, can you help us measure the amount of systemic risk uh, that Evergrande poses to the to the Chinese economy? I think it's pretty funny that they write, write an email to the Chinese government saying, like, hey, we're a systemic risk, implying that they definitely knew that they were a systemic risk and they took on all this debt anyways, which is kind of like, you know, an FU to you know yeah. everyone around them. Right. But like how how much of a systemic risk are we talking about?
2: Yeah. I mean, the question when you evaluate something like that is, are they just saying it because they want to have a bailout in the event that they go belly up, or are they actually a systemic risk to the economy? Um, You know, Is this the Lehman moment that everyone's been calling it? When I look at it, just on a kind of pure numbers basis, you have $100 billion of debt here, give or take, $300 billion or so of liabilities. When you compare that to, like, you know, the financial crisis, 07, 09 you were talking about the trillions of dollars of CDOs that were outstanding. It was a different quantum and a different magnitude of overall exposure in the economy, not to mention the multiples that came off of that on side bets and whatnot, and how that played through the whole economy. The similarity which people want to draw upon is housing, right? You're like looking at the housing, you're looking at real consumers, middle class, working class consumers in China. But the level and the quantum of this is just muted relative to what we had seen back then. So I actually think What they did by saying that was much more of a play uh, to get bailed out because it's better for you if you get bailed out, right? You don't lose all your money as an equity holder. Maybe the bondholders don't lose all of their money. It's just a better situation. But the reality of what they're facing now is dire and it's really a mess. And it's embarrassing for China. I mean, you have something like 1.6 million unfinished homes that they are on the hook for, have accepted some deposits for, and seem like they will probably be unable to deliver. That's like $200 billion worth of home value or something like that. Um, they've been offering up these wealth management products. They started getting creative, basically, when they were running out of money and saying, hey, you, employee, or hey, you, retail investor, um, give us some money. We're going to give you a high-yield investment product for that. In reality, they were just taking that money and using it to fund their losses and trying to pay off debt, You know, take money from one person to pay off the other guy. I've seen that movie before, Um, and it's ugly. It's just an ugly situation. They were like advertising for that in elevators, in the properties that they had developed. Um, it's really a pretty embarrassing situation, and it's a black mark on on China right now, I believe.
1: Okay, so you said they have 300 billion in assets and only 100 million in outstanding debt, which feels like a, a pretty safe ratio, right? Sorry, um,
2: 300 billion in liabilities. Oh,
1: okay. well, Okay. The the inverse. They are
2: they are way over levered. Okay. No, it it is it is an ugly situation for sure, and it's not clear that there's really a an easy way out of it. You know, Mm -hmm. and when you look and if you're if you're in the the you know Chinese policymakers' shoes right now, and you're looking at it there's sort of two options, right? You're, you're cut in a tough spot. You basically can either bail this out. Um, and the downside of that is you're condoning financial excess, right? This founder has made $5 billion on dividends over the last several years, while a bunch of Chinese consumers are getting blown out, having homes that they paid for that they're not able to get, all the vendors, suppliers, the bondholders, et cetera, are getting smoked. Um, you can bail them out and condone all of that and say it's fine, do nothing. Um, you can do nothing and let kind of let, let everything unwind. Just let the whole system fall apart. Let the Chinese consumers get stuck with no money. Let everyone get kind of wrecked. Right. Um, My best guess is that they end up shooting the middle. They kind of adopt a middle ground where basically they find a way to obviate the moral hazard which is probably wiping out most equity holders making sure the founder whoever the largest shareholders are feel real pain associated with it china's pretty good at that Um, make sure that that happens but the consumers and probably some of the senior bondholders, people kind of further up the waterfall, um, end up being made whole or close to whole so that you don't have this like massive systemic thing flowing through the economy, and so that China can continue to you know create this aura of power and control okay. over what is an economy that I think is really on on loose footing.
1: So there are a ton of parallels here that we're seeing with 2008 except for the fact of the size. The magnitude is orders of magnitude uh, much smaller. Instead of happening in America, it's happening in China. And importantly, in in this scenario, in, in the Evergrande scenario, we already had 2008, right? We already had these lessons to learn. Uh, And so, and also the, another main difference I would say is like, like, like you alluded to the disposition of the Chinese government is going to be very, very different than the disposition of the American government in 2008, when the crisis was a first time crisis and also orders of magnitude higher. Um, And so you're you're saying that like, and something I'm I'm actually hopeful for is that these people would have, uh, maybe they don't use this term in, in China, but in America, we would have used the term golden parachute, right? Like... Uh, sweet, you levered up your company, you extracted a lot of the money, you paid yourself a big bonus, and then you crashed the economy, and then you got a bailout from China. Hopefully, uh, China actually is seeing that behavior and, like you said, going after those key individuals in specific rather than... Um, just like allowing, allowing the market to clear, having a lot of pain for the individuals and, and for the, the normal equity holders.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think your, your, uh, characterization is all correct. Uh, the question I would have is like, is this the tip of the iceberg, right? If, even if this one event is not the Lehman moment, maybe this isn't the, you know, size or scale where you could have it uh become the massive downfall is this one of the precursors to that is is china you know sitting on a really unstable footing where this is one of the things and then several other cards fall and all of a sudden you have this spiral of of the overall debt bubble that's that's been happening there for a while Um, the fact for china that's different than the us is this is going to be a precedent setting event for them in some ways of how they choose to handle on a large international scale, uh, something of this ma- of this magnitude. Um, you know, the US, you watch the big short, anyone that's seen that movie at the end of it, they have that whole tongue in cheek scene of like all of these guys went to jail, right? And then you kind of get the dot, dot, dot. Nope, not a single person that, you know, had taken on all this ridiculous risk and made all this money off of all of the consumers who got screwed. Not a single one of them went to jail. I mean, we were in the US, in one of the richest countries in the world, super successful. There were these people making tens of millions of dollars. Uh, you had real consumers who lost their homes who were tragically crushed for the next decade, and those guys got off. Not a single one of them went to jail. And China has a moment in time where they have to decide and they have to take a position on what's gonna happen with this type of um, you know, obvious financial excess and this type of risk-taking behavior. And they need to set a precedent for whatever it is in the future. The scary thing is, it, you know, it goes on behind closed doors, right? Who knows where, you know, the founders, where the, where the key stakeholders in this are going to end up, what's going to happen. Um, but the world is watching. You have the entire world's media now really hyper-focused on this situation. And so China has a big opportunity. It's also a big risk of how they're going to handle it and what's going to end up coming from it.
0: Yeah, you said the world's eyes are definitely uh, on this and and you also said earlier uh Sahil that you know China doesn't really like to doesn't like being embarrassed, right? Uh this is an embarrassing situation and they don't like being embarrassed. Um this is how it first came on on my radar and many many folks in the west were were these kind of these protests that we saw. And this is why David's parallel with uh with 2008, I know others have made it, seems so apt because we saw all of these images Of um, Chinese citizens, the consumers that you're talking about, the consumers that are getting hurt uh, from this incident, like storming, I think the Evergrande offices, and I'm just curious. So, from the perspective of of one of these consumers, one of these protesters, uh, almost like an Occupy Wall Street type microcosm moment. Are, are they basically getting screwed out of their homes? So they put some sort of a down payment expecting Evergrande is going to provide them a home. And now suddenly there's this creeping realization that they're not going to get a home and they're not going to get their down payment back. And so they're pissed off and they storm the building. And my impression is China doesn't really like protests like these, right? Like it's like, let's be quiet about this, right? We're an organized society. We don't operate this way. And when I say China, oftentimes I mean the CCP, uh, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, especially, but like, what is the, uh, outrage felt by a consumer? Are they just getting totally screwed right now, uh, from this deal?
2: Yes. Uh, <laughs> I wish there was a better answer than that. I, I mean, the reality is, is kind of twofold or th- three points I would make here. Um, and it's, it's, bad and it gets to worse. So the bad side is they they put up money for these homes. And when you do that, you expect you're actually gonna have the product delivered. You know, if I go give someone money to do work at my house, if I you know pay a contractor to do some work at my house, give them $10,000, come fix my bathroom, I expect that that person's gonna show up, do the work, finish it, and then I'm gonna pay them upon completion, whatever the remainder is. Um, and there's a bond, there's a trust that's built up in that, and that's what the economy thrives on. We need trust in these systems in order for the economy to work suddenly if i go pay the biggest property developer in china some money to come and build this house for me and i give them my life savings up until that point and then i'm going to go buy the rest of it when it gets done um a few years later that property developer no longer exists. And that house that I thought is built is like a you know ball of concrete that's sitting there unbuilt with grass growing all over it, et cetera. It looks really ugly. And I didn't get my house. Where does that trust go? How do you continue to have trust in the economy and the government, et cetera, when that type of thing happens at scale? Uh, it's really scary to think about. And that has lasting effects uh, as you think about playing that out over the coming years. Because that consumer now, I don't have trust in large institutions. If that was a big company that told me to trust them and told me to give them their money, And now this happens. And then overlay on top of that, this whole thing they did with creative financing, which I I hate as a phrase, but it's the reality of what they did was then they said, okay, shoot, we're running out of money. Let's go borrow money from everybody that we can. And so the way they did that was they said, oh, here's this high yield investment product that you can buy from Evergrande. And oh, we're a safe company. We're the biggest property developer in China. Trust us. We're good. They put up you know papers in the in the elevators of properties that they had already developed where people were living and you're living in the property so of course you trust it you're like ah, oh, this is real this is a real company i can invest in this, this is fun and they get, people gave them real consumers who had invested a lot in the homes already or retail investors who were just looking to have some sort of yield gave them money They strong-armed employees into it. They said, oh, if you want to get your bonus at the end of the year, you have to give us this money and buy one of these products. Otherwise, you might be in jeopardy of not getting your bonus. So what do you do as an employee? You give the company your money. Um, And now suddenly, they're missing payments on it already, right, because they're going under and they don't have the money to pay it. They were promising 10 plus percent interest rates and it's gone. I mean, the money, who knows where it went? They used it to fund some losses elsewhere. They used it to pay interest payments on some other debt. Um, And so the consumer in all of this is getting totally screwed. Um, And that's what China has to really contend with. And that's the biggest risk in my mind from a power struggle perspective, is they need to prove to their own population and to the world who is looking on that there is some level of control over this and that they can actually support their people in a meaningful way who have gotten really taken advantage of in this situation.
1: There's a frequent saying that if we had public, auditable, open permissionless blockchains running our financial system in 2008, 2008 wouldn't have happened because of the level of transparency that blockchains bring to financial markets. Like one of the big messes of 2008 was there's this gigantic spaghetti network of financial contracts that no one could parse apart. Uh, Do you think that if, is there any amount of like, and you're talking about all this trust that needs to be established in institutions. Is there any amount of just like this is happening because these markets are inherently obfuscated or black-boxed or just difficult to read or was the information that caused this crisis more or less open to everyone and people just weren't paying attention is there something that the is there something to open transparent blockchain financial systems that could have fixed this
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right. Trustless systems where you no longer need to trust whoever's the counterparty on this because there is a system that sits in between that can create that um, will clearly help this type of thing. Um, You won't have the type of like rampant uh, uh, activity that leads to this type of cycle in the same magnitude that we've seen it. The reality here is like, there's nothing really new about Evergrande. I hate to say it, right? Like I wrote a bunch about it. Um, The one thing that jumps out at you if you've been around or if you've studied financial history is, There's nothing new under the sun. This is the exact same thing that happens over and over again in history. You get into these bull markets. It's easy to borrow. It's really cheap to borrow. So you start borrowing more. You grow a bunch because of that. Suddenly you're not growing as much. I can't pay my interest. Like you start having the unwind. This happens. The thing that's making it more interesting is the overlay of the geopolitical side with China. Um, All of this creative, you know, fraud borrowing, all of the stuff they did where the consumers are getting screwed over, and you have this massive public spectacle of all of it that's that's playing into it, and I think that's the most interesting part of it, because the reality of the situation is this thing has played out time and time again. Um, will blockchains, crypto, all of that help in the future with you know developing more trustless systems around all of finance? Absolutely, no doubt. Um, I still think we're probably a few years away from that becoming more mainstream, and as we've seen with what China did last Friday, um, I think we're a ways away from having China want wanting to adopt anything like that.
0: Well, you know, another another reason my people might point to is um, just debt is so cheap. I mean, if you're Evergrande, why not just keep stacking up that debt, right? Like interest rates are close to 0%. Uh, And central banks have had this easy monetary policy for like the last you know ten years, and continuing to uh, decrease things, decrease risk. And so, do, do you think that this played a major role in this? And maybe this is also why it's it's not just Evergrande. Maybe Evergrande is the first kind of rotten egg that we discover, but maybe these rotten eggs exist in China and all sorts of other economies. Because the cost of capital is so low, and things have just moved down the risk spectrum to uh, to the most uber risky. How, yep. Does that play a role in this? And what's yeah. your take on that?
2: I mean, artificially low interest rates play a huge role in risk-taking behavior because you're not getting yield here. Um, you know, if you're an investor and you're not getting yield on, on, uh, you know, on treasuries or on whatever is really low on the risk spectrum, you start chasing it elsewhere. And so you're starting pushing, pushing further, further out. And you talk about, you know, where stock markets have gone to and people, um, everything that's priced in, all the growth, it's because people are going further out on the risk spectrum. You know, you have these artificially low risk-free rates, quote unquote, um, on one end and yeah, it drives irrational behavior. It's a dislocation in the market. I I personally am a pretty free market guy. I tend to think of myself that way. And so the reality is when you start disrupting free markets by taking whatever actions, whether it's explicit, like in Japan, and you're going and actually just buying on one end of the treasury curve, or if it's implicit where you're the Fed and you're issuing guidance on what interest rates should be, um, those things all artificially lower interest rates. And so a company, yeah, if I can borrow it, You know, 1.25% versus having to put in equity capital that has 15%, you know, implied costs, that's a no brainer as long as you can do it and as long as you're growing to pay it.
0: So, is there a sense that like the central banks themselves have kind of created the problem and they've created the systemic risk that caused Evergrande to happen? Like, how has the CCP and the central banks actually contributed to uh, the conditions that caused this mess to begin with?
2: Yeah. And this is global. So you can point to the central bank of China, you know, CCP, you can point to the Fed, you can point to central banks globally. Um, I think there is a pretty widespread agreement now that... um, it's probably time to kind of get back to more market-based interest rates and start allowing these things to float more readily. Um, They took down interest rates a long time ago and they've never really come back up. When you look at the long-term chart of it, um, we've been in a just like systemically lower interest rate environment for a really long time. And it causes weird things to happen. People take weird actions when that's the reality. So I don't think that's a China thing, the US, the Fed, I mean, what they've done with interest rates and what it's done to risk-taking behavior on the other end of the spectrum, does it create bad actions yeah and that's the normal cycle if you go read um, Ray Dalio has um, his his kind of amazing tome on on uh, market cycles and uh, and market crises and it's incredible and it's played out time and time again you get you know an environment of really low interest rates and people start taking a lot of risks and it leads to excessive risks and they raise interest rates and suddenly you get a blow up and it comes back down and it, it's just a cycle that has played out time and time again throughout history um, and I think we're just seeing another version of it now. The difference here is this is really a first on the public stage for China.
0: Absolutely. And so uh, you kind of alluded to those your, your best guess on what China is going to do as a result of, of this. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of re rearticulate. So yeah. they, they could either, I guess, decide to, to bail out their the existing investors in the banking system or, or bail out the people, or maybe sort of thread the needle and try to do a little bit of both. What actions do you think they will take to try to, uh, you know, fix this issue.
2: Yeah, it's all about power. Uh, The whole thing comes down to power for them. And the the best thing they can do for their power, both uh, actual power and perceived power, is to keep things as quiet as possible and handle it as quickly as possible. And so I tend to think that that is the solution they will push towards. And what I think that looks like, um, if I had to guess, would be something where um, bondholders, uh, for the most part, are uh, okay. And you kind of have the senior bondholders in particular that, you know, are sitting further up the waterfall and end up okay and bailed out. Uh, And you have consumers that end up generally okay. Those consumers who gave cash or the wealth products, basically people where you don't want these protests happening. And to your point earlier, you want to keep things quiet. You don't want this to be all over the news. You don't want those pictures out everywhere. And so you figure out a way to bail out consumers. You figure out a way to bail out those more senior holders but the equity, for the most part, gets wiped. And people that were the speculators in all of this, including the founder and primary shareholder, who has made a ton of money off this, um, is the one that ends up on the hook. And I think that that's probably the right middle ground solution for them to go with, because it does obviate the moral hazard problem, where you're not condoning this financial excess for future. And i won't be surprised to see the founder in some trouble um publicly and you know and made an example of in some cases uh where you send a message to other entrepreneurs and other builders that this type of financial excess won't fly and if that's his fault or if he's just a you know a casualty of um of what is happening and the need to set a precedent in china um i don't know i don't really have a response to that but i think that's probably what you end up seeing happen over the coming weeks
0: and in china this this doesn't Um, require a legislative act or sort of a congressional uh, act per se, right? So like it it could be a few senior party members who basically dictate that this is the way it's going to be and then so it is.
2: Yeah. I I mean, it's the Downside of democracy, if you will. I think it was like Winston Churchill who said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. Um, You know, in a free democracy, you have to have public hearings about all of this. You have to, um, you know, really play it out, have due process around all of it, etc. It's messy.
0: It's out in the open. It's
2: messy. It's challenging. You have to get a lot of people on sides around it. I mean, we've seen it with them trying to manage all the COVID recovery bills and all of the different, you know, money printing activity. Everything that they've done over the last year is challenging. You get everyone weighing in on it. You have two Fed chairs that are having to resign because they were like insider trading, or you know, allegedly involved in those things. Like it's messy. Um, in China, a lot of this can happen behind closed doors, and, and you've already seen this in the last week. There was a bond payment that was due. There was some like really vague statement that Evergrande put out that they had reached some sort of agreement. No one really knew what the terms of that agreement were, but. They weren't in default. And so things are happening behind closed doors as we speak. Um, decisions are being made. Uh, and my guess is that's how it plays out, is that it's going to be pretty hush-hush. You're not going to get a whole ton of clarity around what's happening. And the results will be what they will be.
1: Well, I think you may have just answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is Now that this event is roughly 10, 11, 12 days old, is there any update we have? Anything new that's that's been added onto the story? Any progression at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of bond payments coming due, (laughs) so there's going to be a lot of updates. Um, I think it's something like seven and a half billion dollars of bond payments that are due in 2022. Um, Big chunks that are coming up due. There was one last week. I forget whether there's one this week, but they definitely have several more that are due in 2021 at every single one of those turning points, there will be an update because people will want to know what the payment made. Um, The way it works in China for most bond payments is that they're done through a clearinghouse. And so like a normal payment, it goes through a clearinghouse, it goes to all the holders of it. Um, When you hear in a statement that a bond payment or an agreement is reached outside the clearinghouse, that tends to mean that there was some form of restructuring, a payment plan put in place, something where they didn't pay it in full. And so last week when they made that announcement, that was kind of the reading between the lines version of it, was something happened behind closed doors, some sort of agreement was reached, and uh, it was done outside the clearinghouse. I would expect you see a lot of outside the clearinghouse activity from Evergrande in the coming months and, you know, quite possibly six months.
0: So, last question, because we want to spend some time on, on crypto here and Ch- uh, China's crypto ban recently. But uh, last question is kind of like about contagion. I mean, should we be worried about this, Sahil? Like, is this going to. Uh, in in fact, other markets is this just sort of the the Lehman moment, as you will, or can we just like stop worrying about this now? What's your take?
2: I would say I'm less worried about it um, than I was two weeks ago when I first started reading about it. I just spoke to more China investors who have been really deep in this market and have a deep understanding of it. Um, who had been observing it for a long time, had kind of come to the conclusion that it was relatively muted in terms of how extensive the impact would be if it unwound, um, had come to terms with how China was probably going to handle it. Um, And so I would say today where I sit is I'm, I'm less concerned about this being the single moment that leads to global contagion. I think the concern I have is that this is the tip of the iceberg and there's a bunch more of these things sitting out there in China and otherwise that... You know that we've been in a bull market for for 10 plus years now and so you're going to start right. having these tales of financial excess and deleveraging spirals that when added up you know start to reach into the trillions of dollars it's not just a hundred billion dollar moment of an ever grant
1: right the everyone's worst fear is that like because the bull market has gone on for so long everyone has positioned themselves accordingly to number go up and when number stops going up then everyone gets caught with their pants down Hill, we want to turn the conversation towards the crypto side of things, why this is relevant to crypto. Obviously, there's that recent China ban, which uh, we all have heard China ban crypto. We've, we've been here before, but this one feels different. Uh, so we're going to turn to that conversation next, right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your dApps all in one place. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants Program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. All right, guys. We are
0: back talking about China, talking about Evergrande. Now we're going to continue the discussion and talk about China's latest crypto ban with Sahil Bloom. This happened on Friday. So, uh, crypto industry. I mean, we we felt these bans before. Um, like this has got to be like the you know 60th or 70th time this has happened. Although I will say there were elements of this ban that maybe felt a little bit different. Uh, and, um, you know, one thing that came into mind uh, came to mind is, broad, broadly speaking, apparently, there were 10 agencies, including the People's Bank of China, that were involved in uh, China's in, in this ban. So some insiders are saying this is a clear sign of the seriousness of the ban. But it's also at the same, same time, there's no secret that China doesn't like crypto, doesn't want it inside of its borders. Just this summer, uh, Sahil, we saw a massive exodus. Of crypto mining from China. And, you know, there was meat to that ban too, in that we actually saw crypto mining facilities like completely leave, set up jurisdictions elsewhere. I'm wondering if you could set that kind of the high-level picture from everything you've seen. Why do you think China is taking this hard line on crypto? What's in it for them?
2: Well, i don't know if there are any dune fans out there i'm a i'm a sci-fi nerd but the you know the whole thing of he who controls the spice controls the universe this is like (laughs) this is money right so for china money is at the heart of everything for them and they need to control it in order to continue to have control over the people over their economy over you know geopolitical space in the long term and so for them Crypto is a big risk. Um, You know, they view it in a really um, closed minded uh, perspective in my in in my mind. Uh, And the way they think about it is if if someone else is in control and is kind of a sovereign uh, individual, uh, as it were, that's scary to them. Um, And so when they're taking these actions, I think that that's the broad overlay to it is just having control showing power and the ability to do this and it sets the tone for whatever they're going to do on digital currency you know the digital yuan or whatever they're going to pursue in that regard that's all around this same environment of trying to create control trying to create power the flip side of it I think it's a massive opportunity for the U.S. from a geopolitical perspective to try to take the stance of being pro-innovation and pro-crypto. When you think about capital flows, that's everything from a macro perspective, right, when you're looking at countries. And there could be a massive capital inflow into U.S. markets if you take a more accommodating stance on these type of new technologies. and, and new progress. So that's kind of my general thought and general perspective on it. And the reality with these things, um, as I think about it, just to use an analogy, is like you take a hose, uh, you turn on the hose at full blast and then put your thumb over it. That's like innovation. You try to stifle it you put your thumb on it. It doesn't last very long. Suddenly it starts squirting out from around your thumbs and it goes nuts and goes everywhere. My guess is that's what you're going to end up seeing in China as it relates to crypto.
1: That that makes a a ton of sense. We all, everyone knows in crypto that crypto is money that's designed to be outside of the control of nation states, right? And China is like that's pick one country that doesn't like that the most, and it's China. But I think uh, another question I want to ask is is why now? Because like China could have actually implemented a ban back in 2017 and stuck with it, and people are drawing the associations between this Evergrande crisis and people using crypto as capital flight uh, vehicles to escape this crisis, right? Is there any association between (laughs) this Evergrande crisis and and the crypto ban?
2: I think there's probably a couple ways you could think about this. Um, You know, one would be, diversion where you're just like oh crap we're on the you know we're on the global stage for something not so great and we have this little crisis going on and so let's like throw out this ban you know like press the press release whenever it was supposed to go out and just shoot it out (laughs) now because we want to divert everybody it's like i saw this great tweet the other day that just said um it had like a you know ccp party um calendar and it was like issue press release banning crypto and it was like Last Friday of every month, uh, and I thought that was so funny because it does feel like you know déjà vu. Suddenly, okay, another ban on crypto. I get it. You know what what you're doing. The other way to think about it is, you know, they've been playing this game uh, for the last several years of like, you know, you see someone doing uh, double dutch jump rope, and they're like waiting to jump in, waiting to jump in, waiting to jump in. Um, and I think China has been playing that game in terms of when to jump in and just take this strong stance in this ban. Um, the challenge for them is it's just gotten so big. Um, you know, if they'd done it five years ago, not many people would have talked about it. It wouldn't have been quite as big of a news cycle. There wouldn't have been as much capital flowed into it. There wouldn't have been all the institutional capital that has flowed into it. Um, and that's a big issue now because now it's gotten to be where like, you know, you talk about too big to fail. Like a lot of this stuff feels too big to fail. You have life insurance companies that have it on their balance sheet. You know, what what are you going to say? Like, how how do you manage that? How do you do that? They're college endowments. So it's, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, Tricky situation for them now because I do feel like they've let it get pretty far uh, before making this type of strong action on it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's another reaction from from people in crypto, which is basically like, why should we take this band seriously? I mean, we we haven't seen much from the other bands. Why why should this one be uh, any different? And uh, you know, w- one of the things, uh, aside from the, the number of agencies that were involved in this particular ban that might be different, is some of the language that was used. So this from a uh, Coindesk article I'm going to read, and this is um, directly from, I think, the, uh, the, 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 um, the statement that uh, China, uh, the CCP has made, that um, there are legal risks involving crypto activity. And a- any legal person Unincorporated organization or natural person who is investing in virtual currency and related derivatives violates public order and good customs. Right. So some of this language was a little bit stronger. But the thing that really, I guess, made me think that this is um, different than previous times is we, we've also seen some of the major exchanges start to react. So um, you know, Chinese based, China based exchanges like Huobi is one. Um, This is a look at their net outflows of Ether from their exchange. And you can kind of see this like tank all the way down. So they had $1.3 billion worth of ETH that was removed from their exchange Mm -hmm. just on September 26th, right? By far the largest ETH outflow to date. Um, This is Bitcoin and ETH held on uh, Huobi over time. It's courtesy of CoinMetrics. And you can kind of see like maybe some people were starting to front run what this would look like. I mean, maybe that that Huobi is no, no longer as competitive as it used to be. There might be other reasons for this outflow, Do but you a find- lot of... Yeah, DeFi. A lot of capital has um, been removed from the from these Chinese uh, exchanges, and this is the uh, the token price of Huobi as well. And they have actually decided to um, to close doors to any uh, Chinese customers as of. Um, I think they're going to phase them out. So by des- end of December, they will no longer be accepting any Chinese customers. So. This indicates to me it's like it, there might be a bit more to this than previous bans, just as we saw like miners start to exit China in, in, in earlier this, uh, this summer. You knew China was serious about this. Now we're seeing exchanges exit China. Um, so that, that might be some of the reason. David, I'm actually interested in your take because you've been, you've been uh, here for a lot of these as well, mm-hmm. these China bands. Does this one feel different?
1: Yeah, it, it does, and it's because this is the first time, like you said, like the evidence actually, the, the charts and the data actually line up with the narrative, right? And the reason why we all started paying attention to that, uh, the proof of work ban out of China was because we saw the hash rate drop. We actually saw pictures of miners putting their miners in boxes. And from what I've gathered, when it comes to uh, understanding China, China's like policy, from the Western point of view because it's very much of a black box because all, most of us do not speak Mandarin and do not have internal to China connections. We just kind of have to wait for actual real evidence to, to actually emerge because China can implement a policy but it doesn't actually mean anything unless the local Chinese markets actually react to that policy. Uh, and so it's really the reaction to the policy that is the signal that the policy is actually real, not the policy itself. Like when, when America does does policy and like you know makes a statement that is generally accepted as absolute truth but with china when china makes a statement it's not really true unless you actually see the people and the markets and the businesses in china actually reacting to that thing because they are so much more tapped into the policymakers of china that like they know what to react to and what not to react to it's just a different world over there sahil any any comments on that
2: yeah, no, I, th- I, I generally agree with everything that's been said. I, I view this through the lens of just like first law of thermodynamics, like law of conservation of energy. It's, it's not like this is getting destroyed. It's just squeezing somewhere else. And so all of those outflows that you pointed to, that's someone else's gain, and there's the opportunity for some other sovereign state to become accommodating around these things and become accepting, and you know, build innovation and businesses, and it creates a ton of jobs as people are building Web three um, around these different countries. And so, I think if China is not going to take advantage of you know what could be the next version of technology, Web, you know, if Web three is the natural extension of all of this. Um, then that's somebody else's gain and if it's the u.s and there's a lot of you know funding and accommodation around these new technologies protocols everything that's being built that's a huge opportunity economically you know but both with the actual currencies uh, but more broadly with jobs with everything that's going to be built around it so i'm actually You know, for for me, like I think long term, this makes me um, bullish on what other countries can do to become accommodating around these things. And it's not a shock to me that China is taking this kind of stance on this. They hate the idea of of any individuals having power uh, over the state and being able to take control of the money, as it were.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so this this kind of brings us into maybe the geopolitics of of this. So um, there's there's definitely some, I guess. Ge- geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. And, and and China going on, right? And so, but although I will say, uh, both governments do have an interest in uh, some level of control, right? You might say, you know, the Chinese government has, uh, you know, a far greater level of interest and far more restrictions on individual self sovereignty. But um, the U.S. government, I think, I would argue, also wants to be in control, needs to be in control too. And they've come out recently, at least specific agencies have, the SEC in particular, uh, and there have been murmurings of all sorts of different agencies in the US about restrictions on uh, crypto and increasing the the tightening on crypto in various ways. So I'm kind of interested in your take on um, how China banning crypto and taking an even more harsh stance on crypto might impact what the US does next, right? Because like... There, there's one way to look at this, which which just says, yeah, you know, all governments are the same. They all kind of want control, and so the U.S. is just going to follow uh, China's playbook. There's another way you could think of this, and lens you could think of this, where it's just like everyone's in kind of this Mexican standoff, right? And when China goes left, the U.S. then immediately wants to go right. It's kind of like you know Republicans and Democrats in this country a little bit, right? Like. Oh, you're going to wear a mask? Oh, I'm definitely not going to wear a mask, uh, you know, or, or, or the opposite. Uh, you want to wear a mask? Okay. Like, you know, we're, we're going to add multiple layers of masks, you know, to, just to do the opposite of what you do. So um, I wonder if the US might decide as a result to be more embracing of crypto, uh, given where China's going with this. What's your take on how that plays out?
2: So I don't have a whole lot of faith in government in general. Um, And I hate saying that because I grew up and had a lot of opportunities in the U.S. And I think it's it remains the greatest country in the world. But we have a whole lot of deficiencies in government. And so I have almost zero faith in our ability to be highly strategic and long term oriented um, in decision making around these things, I would say. The most strategic thing and the most long term thing we could do right now would be to take an accommodating stance on these things, would be to embrace uh, crypto, would be to embrace all you know Web3, become the central hub globally of Web3 technologies and you know foster all of it in the same way we have with other technologies. You know, the same way we provided subsidies for coal companies for a long time, provide subsidies and tax breaks for companies that are building the future of innovation, the future of technology, etc. Um, do I think that's going to happen? No. Uh, I, I think that the easiest solution is to continue to take a, um, you know, a more adversarial stance on all of these things. You've seen Gensler and what he's doing. Um, but the reality is, in a lot of ways, the emperor has no clothes, right? Like, that you're trying to take this moral high ground as the government and say, oh, crypto is, you know, this bad thing and it's dark and who knows what they're doing with this money. And then you have, you know, two Fed chairs uh, having to step down because they were, you know, taking actions that were probably illegal in terms of their trading activity. And so, h- how do you kind of rationalize those two? I don't know, um, and that's the the fundamental tension that our government is facing right now and its ability to deal with these things. Uh, but if you view it in a longer term lens, there is a real opportunity that gets created when China takes such a hard stance on something, um, and you just you just hope that there are enough you know forward thinkers in in Congress and and in power in the U.S. to actually take advantage of that. I think private markets, by the way, and private capital. Is taking advantage of it. I mean, you're seeing some of the biggest forward-thinking venture funds in the world pouring so much capital into crypto, into web three, some of the best technologists of the last 20 years are the ones that are leading the charge in terms of building this future. Uh, but from a government perspective, you don't have a whole lot of like smart technological thinkers in the government. If you go look at the, you know, in the roster of Congress. And so that's a huge issue because you're going to continue to face these, you know, misunderstandings and inability to really comprehend what's being built and what's happening. And it's going to hold us back in terms of taking advantage of it strategically.
0: So overall, do you think a China ban is bullish for crypto?
2: I think everything is long-term bullish for crypto, man. I just think (laughs) it's like the natural trend of progress and technology and society is where we are headed with these things. And so I think that like these blips along the way these bands the different people that are going to try to take control it's like trying to put you know a dam in front of a river that's moving it's just going to find ways to pour around it and continue marching towards where it's ultimately going and we're going downstream progress is being made real technologies and applications are being built um, and you can't stop that in in such a simple way and so i um i continue to be just long-term bullish short-term who knows i mean governments do crazy things it causes price impacts um i don't really have a view short-term ever on things but long-term the technologies are real they're here to stay um, and there's real useful high utility stuff being built which at the end of the day is what matters
0: yeah, well said. I think crypto is far more inevitable than than most people uh, give credit give it credit for. And so most of these things do end up being being blips. Um, I, I'm curious as we draw to a close. Uh, in you've you've mentioned this several times that this this evergreen thing could be kind of just the start or like just the the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, I, I'm curious if you like what could happen next. What might be the next um, brick to fall or Issue that we have if, um, if some of your concerns about the Evergrande issue being more deep seated pan out? Could we see is it more real estate in China should we be looking at, or should we be looking at other uh, corporations in general that have high amounts of debt? Or if things go wrong, how might they go wrong?
2: Yeah, I, I think the first place to logically look is to other property developers in China. You think of like you have a you have a crisis, you start kind of like expanding out from that core in terms of where you look to see if there's if there's spread or if that was the tip of the iceberg. Property developers in China, there's probably a bunch that are overlevered to some extent. None to the extent of Evergrande, but it's still a risk. And if you start losing trust in the property development sector in China and people start pulling their money or there's you know uh, increase in the price of the debt, those things can all have an impact where even if you're more lightly levered, you can be the next one to go. Um, as you start to expand out from that, I think that's just you start looking to different sectors. Are there you know, tech darlings that are over levered or you know, not grounded in, in real functionality that have been priced up to the, to the hilt that have a bunch of debt from you know, an extensive number of the banks or from municipalities or from a bunch of the funds? You start to just see all of these connection points in this like, spider web of the global economy as it, as it has become um, and figure out, are there other things you know, that are going to start playing out? Uh, And the reality is most of these things are known by somebody and someone has been looking about it or talking about it. Twitter is this incredible resource where when I went and I was researching, there have been people talking about Evergrande for the last year. And you go back and search some of the things there were like real credible people that were saying this is a mess this is a house of cards for the last year but the narrative only caught up to it a month ago three weeks ago um and to my point on like the technical plus the psychological with these type of spirals you really need both the technical starts to play out but until the psychological hits that's when you really get this acceleration of these spirals so um You know, I think it's about finding the technical, looking through it, if you're going to spend time on it, figuring out where that exists, and then biding your time until that psychological side starts to play through.
0: Sahil Bloom, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. Uh, Where can folks follow some of your work?
2: So I'm at Sahil Bloom on Twitter. It's just my name. Um, I've got a newsletter um, at www.sawhillbloom.substack.com, I think. Um, Also have a uh, kind of podcast and show launching with my good buddy, Greg Eisenberg, soon. So stay tuned for that. Um, It's going to be a blast and we hope to get you guys on there soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. You are a talented content producer, sir, and we look forward to future collaboration. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, Bankless Nation, some actions item for you. Follow Sawhill on Twitter. You'll absolutely love the threads that he's putting out. Also, we'll include a link to the Curiosity Chronicle so you can subscribe to that substack as well. Guys, of course, none of this was financial advice. It never is on Bankless. Bitcoin is risky, ETH is risky, DeFi is risky, so is global macro investing, you never know what could go wrong. You could lose what you put in crypto, uh, but this is the frontier, it's not for everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Bankless journey.
1: Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium Subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.